So the last few weeks, I, I knew I was going to be preaching this morning, so I was just considering before God what to, what to share. And uh, I don't know why this thing's gone to the other text. And it says, What I have received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Isn't it interesting that he talks about the fact that the Scriptures are the preeminent and primary thing that tells us about what Jesus was going to do and what He did? Yes, then he goes on and he says, Caiaphas was, saw me and a whole bunch of other people saw me and, and I was resurrected and I, but Jesus was. But the point is, is that it actually wasn't the witnesses as much as there were hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses that saw Jesus having resurrected from the dead. And that's what we celebrate today. But it was actually according to the scriptures, according to God's promises. And we have the scriptures in our hands. And so I was going to come and preach the most amazing preach to you out of that text and then I got arrested on Friday night after preaching on uh, Good Friday. And we, we, I preached a message, why do we call Good Friday good when our Lord and Savior was crucified? But you can listen to that online. You know, what happened was, was throughout the week, and I was, I was listening to a whole bunch of preachers, and this thing came up, the seven last words or sayings or phrases of Jesus that he said on the cross. Seven is the perfect divine number. And Jesus had these seven things that come out in the scriptures. While he was being crucified, he says seven things. And it's interesting, if you think about it, it's like um, if somebody was on their deathbed, you, you know that they're going to speak, their last words are going to be significant. I know if I was on my deathbed and I had my family around me, I would make sure that whatever I left them would be a significant thing. Certainly leave them with my, my love and my appreciation for them and all of those good things, but possibly give some wisdom to my kids around how they should live out their lives. And so Jesus' last words are important. We see in the scriptures how Jacob and, and Abraham and Isaac, they all brought their kids. They knew they were about to pass from Project Planet Earth, and they'd bring their kids, and they would bless them, and they would leave them with wisdom in order to live out their lives. So these are significant words that Jesus speaks about what he wanted to accomplish and what he was about to accomplish on the cross and so let's have a look at them because the first one is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do or they do not know what they're doing. I don't know about you, but often I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. That was a joke. Luke 23:34. What's interesting is as he opens this passage, and you'll see later on, is his last saying starts with the word Father. He starts with Father, he ends with Father. Jesus is describing this intimate father-son relationship that he wants us to live in. Throughout the scriptures, and if you read specifically the Passion Translation, it talks about this father-son relationship that is beyond any other. And I'll read some scriptures later of him talking about the oneness with the father and how he wants us to experience that oneness with him. I hope you here this morning wanting to experience the same thing as Jesus experiences, and that's why he starts with this intimate word, Father, Abba, or Abba. The thing is, is that Jesus knows that there is separation between the Father and us as humanity. And so he starts out with a prayer which talks about forgiveness. It talks about this thing of going to understand that he is calling out despite the fact that these are enemies of his. They are literally nailing him to a cross to kill him, and he is praying for them. 
He's not praying for Mary, his mother. He's not praying for his family. He's not praying for his disciples. He's praying for the people that are killing him. And so this prayer of forgiveness is something that maybe right now you know of somebody in your life who's either hurt you, somebody who is, um, uh, that, that you know is at work and you think they will never come to know Jesus. They are so far gone. Possibly Putin of our time, Hitler of, of previous times, whatever. They will never come to know Jesus. And yet Jesus is praying for people, the hardened soldiers who are nailing him to a cross. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. Let's never stop praying for those who we think are beyond salvation. Nobody is beyond salvation. And Jesus proves that by his prayer as he is getting nailed to the cross. The thing is, it's total forgiveness. I, I mentioned this on Friday or, or spend some time on it. it. It's not just some sins. It's all of our sins, as Colossians 2 tells us. He forgave us every sin, past, present, and future. That once you walk in salvation, you, I don't know about you, but uh, did, did you stop sinning? I mean, we want to, and hopefully we become increasingly more godly as we move in, in our lives towards finally leaving Project Planet Earth. But the point is, is in all of this, Jesus has forgiven us all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it gives us a confidence that nothing we can do and our behavior is not something that determines whether God will receive us or reject us because it's all done according to what Jesus has said. So Jesus forgives them despite all of their sins. He forgives us despite our sins, despite who we are, despite the fact that we show him the finger on a daily basis, even as Christians. I want to do this. Now, you can't come into this part of my heart. You can't come into this room in my heart because I need to be keep doing this. And Jesus wants to come in and deal with you because despite these people who are scourging him, who are who nailing him to a cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, this word justified, it's almost a legal term. If you want to understand, it's just as if you've never sinned. That I said on Friday night, it's, it's when it talks about being, the revelation. God opens up the books at the big white throne. And each one of us has a book. But there's the book of life. Is our name written in there? And is the book that we've got that as he opens it up, it says that he erases every single bad thing that we've done. And I hope that when he opens my book, there's nothing in there. Not I hope, I know there won't be. Why? Because when I stand before the courtroom and the judgment seat of, of Jesus, Father God's going to look at me and see Jesus, not me. And that's the beauty of just as if I've never sent this total forgiveness that we get from Jesus. Now the question is, right now, you go, okay, great, thank you, Jesus. But I also know that Jesus wants to apply that to us. And I want to ask you this morning, who do you need to forgive? Who's hurt you? Who's wounded you? Who's disappointed you? Because if we continue in unforgiveness, we live outside what God wants us to live in, and that's his kingdom. You know, when it says the gluttons and the slanderers and the gossipers will not inherit the kingdom of God, that's not talking about eternal kingdom. It's talking about living in it now. It's all present tense in the Greek. And so when we don't forgive, Right now, maybe there's somebody who's coming to your mind. Let's just stop for a moment. Make a decision in your heart to forgive now. Start the journey of forgiveness. It starts with a decision to choose, Lord, I no longer want to live in that place. Why? Because there's some great quotes here. Because to forgive is not to excuse the other person's behavior or to prevent it, but it's actually to prevent the behavior 
from destroying your heart. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and then only to discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive does not change the past, but it opens up the future for possibilities. Who do you need to forgive? Release yourself from the prison of resentment. I want to just say, though, remember that your responsibility is to forgive the other person, but there may not be reconciliation. What what are you saying, Gary? Even our faith requires repentance. Jesus forgave us and forgives us, but it requires me to turn to him and to forgive, I mean, and to repent, to turn away and to have godly repentance, to have a a fruit of repentance in my life. There may be some people in your life that you have to stick out boundaries. They haven't come and repented before. You can forgive them, but until they turn in repentance, there cannot be reconciliation. And I would say to you, do not allow those people back into your life from a reconciliation point of view until they repent for the things that they've done. Now, you don't demand that of them. You forgive them and make sure that you're not taking the poison and hoping they're going to die. But forgive them. Walk in forgiveness towards them. But reconciliation can only happen if they turn in repentance. That's how our faith works. Secondly, Jesus says, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23 and 34. Now you, we know the context of this is he's on the cross and he's got the two thieves you know, next to him. I don't know if you've heard this, the story of um, this uh, guy who was on his deathbed and he said to his son, please won't you get my accountant and my attorney and I want them to come and stand next to my bed as I pass into eternity. And so his son said, why would you want your accountant and your attorney to stand next to your bed while you're dying? He says, because I want to be like Jesus. What do you mean? He says, I want to die between two thieves. (laughs) I'm an accountant. I'm allowed to tell that joke. (laughs) Did you enjoy that? But the context is he's he's, he's on the cross between these two thieves. Now, the interesting thing is, before he says this, in Matthew 27, 44, if you want to go read it, it actually says the thieves who were being hung on the cross next to him, or on the crosses next to him, were actually throwing insults at him. So you've got these two thieves, and they're going, ah, come on, if you're the son of God, why don't you pull yourself down? Why don't you save yourself? And come on, and whatever. And they're full of resentment. And and these guys, they know they deserve this. But all of a sudden, one of them turns around and says to Jesus, when we pass, won't you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? What changed? Have you ever thought about that? What do you think changed? I think he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he realized who Jesus was. He encountered the living God. He encountered Jesus And he understood in that moment, oh my goodness, this is the Messiah. Won't you remember me? And part of this process is, you know what? Jesus didn't say, you know what? Um, You need to say the salvation prayer before you can enter. No, no, you need to actually make good and make uh, restitution for all of what you've done. Because you're a bad guy, you know that. But what does he do? He cries out in mercy. And Jesus responds with the salvation invitation and acceptance of this man, 11th hour, 59 minutes and 59 seconds for him. 
But why wait? If you're here this morning, I want to say, why wait? Why wait until, oh, I just want to have heard guys, I just want to have fun and then I'll give my life to Jesus. But maybe you won't get that opportunity. But I love the fact that this is a picture of God's grace, that it wasn't by works. It wasn't by, oh, I have to do this, I have to. No, here is a prisoner, or a prisoner, a thief, a bad person who is on this cross, who in that moment, just before he dies, reaches out to Jesus and receives salvation. And Jesus, by his grace, gives it because he extended faith towards him. Instant paradise is the promise of what this means. Today, I will see you in paradise. And I want to say, don't stop. Today is the day of salvation, as it says in Hebrews. The only requirement is that you believe and that you express that. Why? Because that paradise is, as Paul says, when I am absent from the body, I am present with Jesus. I love that picture, and I can't remember who, who said it. I remember way back in, in my earlier days, somebody was preaching. It says, when you die as a Christian, you close your eyes and you wake up and there's Jesus. I love what Dallas Willard says. He's, he's hoping that, that he can attain a, a certain kind of understanding and, 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 and acceptance and, and presence of God that when he dies, he goes, oh, I'm dead. The point is, is Jesus not only forgives the people that are crucifying him, but a criminal who's been crucified with him simply because faith is expressed. Salvation comes. Thirdly, Jesus says, he's, he's, he's on the cross and he sees John and he sees his mother. And he says, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your, here is your mother. Now, this is quite an interesting one because if, if you think about what's happening is Jesus, if I watched the passion of the Christ on Friday night with my son, Dylan. I don't know if you've, I want to encourage you. I think we should watch it once a year. It just, it reminds us of what Jesus actually went through. And like I said in the prayer meeting, one of the preachers I was listening to this week, uh, I think it was Robert Morris, he, was, he actually went to the, the USA uh, medical journals. And what they did was they went through what crucifixion does and specifically how Jesus actually died. Like if they could do an autopsy, Jesus actually died of a broken heart. Literally his heart gave out because of all the blood loss that he had had. And because of all the excruciating pain that he was going through, his heart literally just broke. And in this moment, he's not worried about himself. He's worried about comforting his mother. So think about Jesus. Whatever situation you're in, if he could do that in that moment, what do you think he's doing right now where he's sitting in heaven interceding for us and loving on us? If we can cry out to him, his comfort is there. He has a thought. Where was Jesus' father? Joseph. Why is Joseph never mentioned in Jesus' ministry? Remember that moment where, oh, your brothers and sisters and your mother are waiting outside for you. No, no, they, if you remember, Jesus says, they, they're not my brothers and mothers and whatever, sisters, you are, those who believe. But remember that, never have the, do we hear. We know that Jude and James, etc., were his brothers. So just a, a, th a thought there, just when your brothers believe that you are the Messiah, you've got to know that he is. And James gets martyred as a result of it because he was leading the Jerusalem church. But that was an asylum for free. 
But back to Joseph. Why don't we hear about Joseph? After Jesus' birth, you don't hear of him again. Why? Well, because it seems like, and church tradition tells us that he had passed away. But why would God give Jesus a father, an earthly father, that he knew was going to die early? Have you ever thought about that? Why do you think? I think he wanted Jesus to experience every kind of tragedy that we face as humanity. Jesus lost his father. His father died. Can you imagine the pain and the trauma he must have felt as a human being as he watched his mother and he watched his sisters and brothers grieve the loss of their father? Some of you have lost parents. Some of you have lost good friends, and especially over this last season with this COVID junk. And, and the pain and the trauma, Jesus can empathize. And that's why when we look at a text like Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way as we are and yet is without sin. And yet also went through all of the experiences we went through and the disappointments and the pain and the trauma of loss. And yet in all of this, there's the promise that he will continually care for us and constantly care for us, both spiritually, emotionally, and physically in every single way. Just think of that moment. He's taking his mother and he's saying, John, I want you to look after her for the rest of your life. And based on the, 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 the historical records, that's what John did. He, despite the fact that there were brothers and sisters, John looked after Mary for the rest of her life. And she lived a long and prosperous life. Jesus is saying the same thing to us. And when I stand here and I go, God, if, if you had to take me early, do I have the faith and the understanding that as you did that for your own earthly mother, you would do that for my family if you took me? Next, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How many of us feel like that sometimes? We find ourselves in context and we, we feel like Jesus. What I, what I love about this, and I often share this at a funeral, this text gives me and gives you the permission to ask why. Why Jesus? What is going on? How can this happen? Why have you taken somebody so early? And all of those kind of things. But in this whole process, is just understand that you may, God's given you permission to ask why, but he may not answer you. I remember friends of ours, they were a young couple who uh, were, were highly gifted. And we'd gone overseas. I'd gone on a, a succumbent with Deloitte to Boston. And we remember waking up one morning and seeing that they'd been in a head-on collision and that they were both dead. 20, 21, 22 years old. Jean and Corin were their names. It was traumatic for us, and we weren't even in South Africa. And they were about to have a church plant. They were supporting a friend of ours, uh, Francis and Nadine Judge, who were about to plant a church called Barrett People. And I was like, God, why? How? And I got the answer when I asked God why. He said, don't you worry. I've sorted this all out. And actually, when you get to heaven one day, the why won't matter. Sometimes not knowing is not the end of the world because we will know, and when we do know, it's not going to matter. 
The thing about Jesus was he was forsaken by God so that we won't be forsaken. What do you mean, Gary? Well, that text, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might receive his righteousness. So Jesus knew and he understood that what he was about to do would put us in good stead, would stop the separation between God the Father, put us into a place of reconciliation with the Father so that we could now have relationship with Him. And then it tells us in Hebrews 3, 13, 5, nothing can snatch us out of His hand from there. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. And it's a salvation by grace and not by works, which I've already said in the previous side. And I, what I love about this is, there was, there was a moment about 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago, where I realized that the covenant that Jesus is now making is made with the Father. We're not even part of it. We simply get the invitation to step into it. And when we step into it, it is secure. So one of the things I didn't say about the thief, the thief, yes, landed up in heaven with an eternal salvation, but didn't bring any inheritance with him. That's why I say don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Start working in faith because everything done outside faith gets burned up. But that which is done in faith, that which the good works God prepared in advance for you to do, God is calling us into a place to start to walk in them because then we take the inheritance with us into eternity. Once we express faith in Jesus, there's no chance of rejection because it's not based on works. If our salvation is by grace through faith, then why, if my salvation is not based on works, would now my behavior determine whether I can keep it? But my inheritance is based on what I do. My inheritance is based on my obedience. My inheritance is based on my commitment to him. And that's what I do. I want to store up treasures in heaven for the time when I move across or I move from Project Planet Earth. Then he says, next one, I'm thirsty. What's amazing is, is that this word in Greek is one word because of the way the Greek kind of uh, language works. And it's called dipseo. Dipseo. It's like I'm thirsty. But interesting, what we do is we look at this and we think, oh, he was thirsty. He had a physical need. But if you read in the scriptures before that, they actually offered him something to drink and he said no. So why all of a sudden was he now thirsty? You know, John 17, Jesus is praying and it's quite a long text, but let me read this for you. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I mentioned this at the beginning. I pray also for those who will believe in me and their message, or through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. You know, this is one of these like uh, Wood, chuck, 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 wood, chuck, wood, you know. It's like, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and, have, and that you have loved them as even as you have loved me. See, it is. It's a wood, chuck, chuck, wood one. Quite tongue twister. But the point of what he's trying to say is, is that in all of what I'm doing, I'm providing a place to give an opportunity for, 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 the, for humanity to come and to be in your presence again, to be reconciled with you so that they can then declare that to the rest of the world. And one of the things Louise mentioned earlier is and the, the word, it is finished, the um, tetelestai 
word, which we're going to go into in a moment, it's out of Psalm 22. And I love what Louise said to us in our prayer meeting was, it talks about all of what Jesus was going to do. But then after it's finished, he says, now you as the church need to go and to declare. And that's why he's calling us into this place that if when we are one with God, what we are able to do is we are able to be the testimony and the words and the feet and the legs of Jesus to tell of this amazing message, the gospel that seems to be too good to be true, but it is. Now, the thing is, is Jesus knows that he has to remove sin from humanity so that we can then walk in what he has just prayed. Now, the question is, is he knows he has to drink a cup. So what I've said is, we've said it was a physical thing, but I showed you that actually in the text that says that he was offered something, he didn't take it, so this is not a physical thirst. I believe with all of my heart that he says, I'm ready to drink the cup. Why? Because in all of these others, he's in the garden, garden of Gethsemane, before he's betrayed, and he's saying, Father, if, can, is there any other way to take this cup from me? But not my will, but your will be done. When uh, they come and they betray, when Jesus betrays him, and Peter picks up his sword and cuts the ear off the, the God, and, and Jesus says, stop it, Peter. Why? Stop it. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And I believe in that moment, he realized, okay, here's the moment. I'm here. I am thirsty. Why? Because I now need to drink that cup of suffering in order to set people free and to put them in a place where they can. That cup represents sin because it wasn't a nice cup of water. It was vinegar wine. How many of you have tried that? I remember my mom and dad, they, we, we moved them out of their spot. They were there for 50 years. Now you can imagine what you gather in 50 years. And my dad had this bottle of wine that I think he must have got kind of in the first 10 years that they moved into the house. So we thought it was a Cabernet Sauvignon. And I thought, sure, this is going to taste nice. And we opened it up. Oh, my gosh, it was disgusting. And this was vinegar wine that Jesus was given. And you can see the picture from the passion that I've got up there. But the point is, is that what he is doing is he's making ready this opportunity, this invitation he is taking on our sin so that we could be reconciled back to the Father. And it's simply by believing that we walk in this. It is finished. Bruce has already expressed what this word says, tetelestai. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word. And I've actually asked Bruce, he shared some stuff from the prayer meeting. Bruce, won't you come and just share because he kind of gave it a lot more color than I was going to give. So, isn't it strange how God works? Firstly, who noticed that when, God, when Gary said, enter into the presence of God, the air conditioner went off? I took it as a sign. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for your presence. <laughs> um, the, 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 Greek, the Greek word of teletet, <laughs> that tongue twister, tetelestai, when I, when I went and looked it up from the ancient Greek, it had three contexts, pretty much. The first context was, in a business context, so in ancient Greek times, if you had issues or challenges in your, your business, and in those days it was around the finances, around the business, and someone settled the debt in your business, it was called that tetelestai. It was around the business aspect of it. The second point was around in a court, when sentence is being spoken and brought down, and judgment has been passed, and the sentences was made fully served, it was said tetelestai. 
And the third one was in a military context where a battle had been won when the guys had engaged, like when we were up on the border perhaps, or when we were fighting, or if you have a battle, personal battle that you were fighting, when you had won, it was used in that context to say, tetelestai, it is finished. So the takeaways for me was that, thank you, Lord, that our debt of sin is fully paid. Tetelestai, it is finished. As Gary was mentioning, two books, the book of your life and the book of life. The book of your life and the book of life. And as a Christian, as a Christian, when we go and stand in front of God, who is going to pronounce judgment, we have a lawyer with us. His name is Jesus. And when God opens that book of your life, it's blank. Because, Sam, it is finished. Second context. You've been in bondage. You've been tied up. You've been in a tomb. You're struggling with relationships. You're struggling with business. You're struggling in a court of people coming to you and judging you, of people pointing fingers at you. It is finished. Tetelestai. And the last one is the battle that we wage against sin. And when the enemy comes and he brings sickness and he brings this blasted COVID and he brings disease into your life, what did God do for us already? Tetelestai. It is finished. I love that word. Just thought I'd share. Thank you. See, I told you it was better than Marwan. But it's complete. It's done. It's finished. You know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and you can imagine, well, it's unimaginable the suffering that he was going through. If you ever read up on what it was like, not only, I mean, those, those thieves that had a couple of whippings and then they were up, watching the passion of the Christ, and I had Dylan with me, and Dylan, what, did this really happen? What is that whip with the little balls of metal and, and, and bone that just ripped flesh from you? Most people wouldn't survive that. And then Jesus has to carry his cross all the way up to Golgotha and then get, get nailed to it. No wonder he died before the others did. And as we know, he died because no bone was broken. The point is, is that with this whole thing of it is finished, I've already said this, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just let me read that again. Let me close your eyes because I... I want this to sink in, but God shows his love for us that in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if it's all complete, what do we need to do? There's this text in John 6, 28. It says, then they asked him, what must we do? What, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work is simply believe in the one he has sent. And this beautiful text, I, I love it, but we've got to watch that it doesn't just become kind of some kind of ritual because it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not some kind of well, mantra, uh, you know, confess, believe. No, it's actually something happens. Like that thief on the cross believed in his heart. He, 
there was something that transacted. It wasn't a mental ascent to anything. It was an understanding that this is what Jesus had done. The thing is, is though, is you have to receive it. You can be given the, the greatest gift of all, whatever it might be, a home, a, a car, a, a child, or whatever it is, but if you don't open up that gift, you can't use it. Many of you have got Ferraris in your garages. I don't, but you're welcome to give it to me if you don't want to drive it. <laughs> and then lastly, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he called out in a loud voice. It wasn't like a, hey, Father, here I am, you know. But again, remember what I started with, Father? It ends with Father. This intimate relationship, understanding that even though he had felt forsaken, he still knew that God was around he still knew God had him. And with all of this, there's this willingness. And I, I wrote these three things down. Jesus died willingly. He gave up his life. Remember when, when um, Pilate comes and says, well, hey, you know, do you really want to die? And he's like, actually, you won't take my life. You actually can't take my life. I need to lay my life down. And Pilate's obviously going, oh, yeah, sure. The Roman army, we're going to take you out. But Jesus could have called a legion of angels. The point is he died willingly, and he showed his commitment to us. And he showed, ultimately, that that's where his heart was with his father. William Barclay, a great old philosopher and theologian, said, even on the cross, Jesus died like a child falling asleep in his father's arms. I'm trusting every single one of us will pass that way at some point. We, all, we know we're all going to pass from Project Planet Earth into eternity. I'm trusting I can die like that, falling asleep in my father's arms because of the intimate relationship that I have with him. The thing is, Jesus gave his all. All seven of these things describe Jesus literally gave his full life, everything that he had. I mean, who loves bacon and eggs? Okay, so who knows that the pig is way more committed to that meal than the chicken is? I remember playing rugby at school, and my dad also taught me this, was if you ever are going to play rugby, it's a physical game. It's about physical intimidation. That, I played inside center most of, most of my rugby time, played into third year varsity, and the, what we, I was always taught by my dad, who played a similar position, was that first move of the game, when your opposite center gets the ball, you tackle him whether he's got the ball or not. You hit him so hard that he's going to look for you for the rest of the time. Get involved. Get committed. The guys who came off the field with white shorts on were not the guys you wanted to play with. You loved the guy when you, when you saw a guy break past you and you couldn't get him and then your mate just took him out. Get involved. Get committed was always the mantra in our first team rugby team. The question is, is, how do we respond to the commitment of Jesus? What is your commitment like to Jesus right now? If he fully gave himself for us, what is our response? During the time he was in Jerusalem of those days of the Passover feast, many people noticed the signs he was displaying and seen that they pointed straight to God, entrusting their lives to him. 
But Jesus didn't entrust his life to them. He knew them inside and out, and he knew how untrustworthy they were. He didn't need any help in seeing right through them. I don't want to be one of those people. Because the reality is that if we don't commit ourselves fully to God, there's another text in Revelation that says, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out my mouth. I want Jesus' presence. I want to be like David and achieve the purposes God has for me in my generation. I want to be called a man after God's own heart. I want to commit my life to serving Jesus and doing the good works he's prepared in advance for me to do. My call out to you this morning is, will you join me? I know I do it imperfectly, and so will you. But God's not looking for perfection. He's already got it in Jesus. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Our salvation is secure. He is eternally committed to us that no matter what we do, Yes, we may lose out on our inheritance, and I want to pray that we don't, that we are like David, that we are called people who achieve the purposes that God had for us in our generation. But the thing is, is that all of this, all of this is what I started with. All of this was proved by the resurrection. If Jesus, I told you on Friday, 10, over 10,000 other people were crucified by the Roman army over that time in Israel. And yet, there was only one who was raised from the dead. And his resurrection proves every single or validates every single one of those saints, the seven that I've gone through. We will die. But the question is, or the fact is, is Jesus is the prototype of the resurrected body that each one of us will get. We will be raised to new life on that day when he returns. On that day, that impingement in my neck won't be there anymore. On that day, I won't wake up with an injury from the sleep I had not before. On that day, my body will operate, in my view, on light, no longer on blood. On that day, we won't need the sun because God will be our sun. On that day, when I stand before God and instead of getting a judgment for the things that I've done wrong or the things that I didn't even do, sins of omission as well as commission, I stand before God and I get the rewards that are due me because I've done the things in faith that he's called me to do. I know Jesus has saved me. You don't live with my head. I know Jesus pursued me. I know Jesus forgave my sins and forgives my sins. I know that he is so committed to me that no matter what I do, I will never be lost and snatched out of his hand. I know I will never be forsaken. And I know that one day I will experience immediate paradise because he has provided the way for me. I know when I close my eyes and leave Project Planet Earth, I will open them and see Jesus looking at me. Why? Because Jesus chose to drink the cup of suffering. Jesus chose to thirst for my salvation and for yours. Won't you stand?